Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, for the next few weeks, we'll be airing one of Dr. Newfeld's most popular series called The Fellowship of the Gospel. So let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Philippians chapter 1, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled Embracing a Grand Gospel Vision. I want to begin today by quoting a number of verses that most of us are familiar with. Here's the first. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Or consider this verse, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. How about this one? So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then here's another great verse. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And then there's this one that has helped many. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Or consider this verse. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. How about this verse? Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God. Or who can forget this verse? Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And finally, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. How many of you know that all of these verses I have just quoted come from the book of Philippians? Yes, all of those come from that one short book that make up only four chapters in our Bible. Now, that's an impressive array of verses that almost all Christians are familiar with, making me think that this is one of the most quoted books in the Bible. You know, what's more, it's been pointed out that the theme of joy simply breaks out everywhere in this book. At least 11 times in these short four chapters, Paul either speaks openly about his own joy or he encourages readers to enter into joy themselves. And lest one miss it, let me also point out that Jesus is mentioned, well, at least 34 times in these four chapters, reinforcing that whatever Paul says about joy is grounded deeply in his knowledge of Jesus. And so very easily, without even trying, we can see that Christ and joy literally ooze out of every sentence in this remarkable little book. But here's the danger. For many of us, it may seem because we've memorized verses from this book and heard it referred to as the epistle of joy that we assume we already know everything about this book. And it's this over-familiarity that might hide from us the real theme of this book along with something that might just change our lives. So how do we begin? Well, you'll notice that the title I have given to this series is The Fellowship of the Gospel. And I'm quite aware that that sounds like a kind of a boring title and a boring series, but if you'll just hang in there, I'd like to explain why this is a very cool title indeed. But before I do, let me give you a little background to this letter. We notice that the letter is written while Paul is in prison in Rome, awaiting trial before Caesar's tribunal. You know, while in prison, he writes this letter to the church he started at Philippi, which I think may well have been his favorite church. Now, I say this because as we read this letter, we will find that on only one occasion is there a rebuke, and it comes in the fourth chapter when Paul mentions two women, Euodia and Syntyche. 
And he tells them to agree with each other and for the rest of the church to help these two women put their dispute behind them. But there is no suggestion that the dispute has broken out into the wider church, causing an argument there. I mean, outside of that, there's a warning in chapter 3 to beware of false teachers. But again, no indication that the church was at that moment being deceived in any way. Rather, they were warned about a future threat. Now, I say that because if you contrast this letter with a letter to the Corinthians, for example, Paul charges them with being divisive, being unspiritual, tolerating sexual immorality, lawsuits against one another, and more. Or when he writes the Galatian Christians, he charges them with being on the verge of deserting the gospel. The Ephesians are warned not to walk as the Gentiles do, and the Colossians, well, they were warned not to submit to regulations that were a part of the false philosophies of asceticism they had adopted. But here in Philippians, we find no such warnings. Indeed, if Paul gives them a command, he wants only that their love would abound more and more, and to remember to speak the word boldly without fear. And so by all accounts, this is a church that has got their act together. Furthermore, it seems like Paul had a partnership with his church for the advancement of the gospel in a way that he had with no other church. See, by all accounts, this church was as close to an ideal as you will find in the New Testament. And there's a lot to learn here. But there is a drama that stands behind the writing of this letter, and that drama is really quite engaging. Years before this letter was written, Paul and Barnabas had returned from the very famous Council of Jerusalem in which the Christian leaders there gave Gentile evangelism the two-thumbs-up sign. Gentile Christians would not be required to undergo circumcision, nor would they be required to submit to Jewish dietary restrictions. And that historic decision set the gospel free to reach the Gentile world. Rather than forcing Gentiles to become Jewish in culture and practices, they would simply come to Christ within the context of their own culture. Food, drink, clothing, and other cultural practices would not be the issue. Rather, the cross, the resurrection, and the promises made in the gospel, they would be front and center. So armed with a historic Christian decision, Paul and Barnabas start out on their second missionary journey, a journey that would change the world. Initially, the two men were going to retrace their steps through what was then called Asia and what we now call Turkey, but God had other plans. Listen to how Luke describes it in in the book of Acts, and I'm reading from Acts 16, verses 6 to 10. And they went through the region of Perga and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they came up to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So, what's so significant about that? Because names like Perga and Galatia and Mycenae and Troas and Macedonia are unfamiliar to many of us. We might read this passage and and our eyes kind of glaze over and we're going to miss why this moment is a groundbreaking, earth-shattering moment. See, up to this moment, The gospel has stayed fairly close to home. It began in Jerusalem, went up to Judea, which was 
a wider Jewish territory, and then amazingly, a church began in Antioch, which was in Syria. Now the gospel was being heard and believed on among the Gentiles. And from there, it went into Asia Minor, which from our perspective is Turkey. But Macedonia, well, that puts the gospel on a new continent. See, many of us will know that the journey to Macedonia would have taken Paul from Troas, which was a seaport city on the far west and near north of Turkey. Now, from there, Paul would have sailed west across the Aegean Sea, which, by the way, is on the northern end of the Mediterranean Sea. And when Paul sailed west from Troas, he would have set foot in a small town called Neapolis, which was in Greece. And as he set his foot down in the harbor, the gospel itself set foot on European soil for the first time ever. You see, if you had a mindset to reach the world for Christ, the way forward would be into Europe with the dream that perhaps one day, if God allowed it, the gospel would penetrate into Rome itself and capture a large part of the world for Christ. It's a bigger dream than one could possibly have imagined. I mean, the gospel capturing Rome seems wildly fantastic. Now, from Neapolis, Paul and his team would have walked about 15 kilometers along a roadway called the Ignatian Way, which was a Roman highway that led from the seacoast to the city of Philippi, a city named after Philip II, who was the father of Alexander the Great. And this was a well-known city, for it had in, uh, in 42 BC been the place of a very famous battle. Augustine, the the greatest of all the Roman emperors, indeed the man who moved Rome from being a republic to an empire, had in that site defeated Brutus and Cassius, the two men who had murdered Julius Caesar. And with that, Augustine was crowned emperor, and the Roman world was changed, and with that, Philippi had become famous. You know, what's more, many Roman soldiers settled there in that city, and the city at the time of Paul's arrival was a Greek city in which many of the citizens were descendants of Roman soldiers. Latin had become the language of power in Philippi, so all the leadership of the city spoke Latin, although the blue-collar workers typically spoke Greek. But suddenly, Paul found himself ministering in a world that had very little Jewish influence, and that was about to change everything. The book of Philippians tends to capture our attention with many familiar and often quoted passages. But when we take the time to look deeply into the heart and soul of Paul's letter, an even grander understanding of its significance emerges. Dr. Neufeld has begun today by pointing us to the gospel-centered theme that runs throughout this letter. And when we come back, we'll see further how the proclamation and the fellowship of the gospel laid the foundation for the church. Laugh Again, an associated ministry resource of Back to the Bible Canada, has had a profound impact on so many lives. In five minutes a day, Phil Calloway, through his special gifts of encouragement and humor, has opened ears to hear the gospel and offered a message of hope in difficult times. Sarah wrote, I love Laugh Again. It's family humor. It talks about things that we can all relate to without tearing each other down. Well, only weeks ago, Laugh Again introduced its newest program, Laugh Again Take Five a five-minute weekly video program that can be seen online at laughagain.ca or on the Laugh Again TV YouTube channel. If there was ever a time to be encouraged, 
check out Laugh Again Take 5 with Phil Calloway. For more information, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit laughagain.ca. When Paul arrived in Philippi, perhaps in either AD 49 or 51, all the old rules of his missionary strategy had to change. For one, he always made a point of first visiting the Jewish synagogue in whatever city he came. It was a part of his theology. The gospel was for the Jew first and then also for the Gentile. And so Paul would begin to proclaim the gospel in a local synagogue, create a stir there, get kicked out, and then from that would launch a Gentile ministry. And that ministry would mean that the leaders in Gentile evangelism would have come out of the synagogues. Jews would form the first believers, and this would be helpful because you didn't have to explain all the Old Testament background to them. But there was no synagogue in Philippi. And even though this was in Greece, this was a Roman town. On every civic building were large Latin letters, the sports facilities, pagan temples, and the way the city was organized was Roman. In Jewish law, 10 men were required to start a synagogue, so clearly no Jewish 10 men lived there. There was no synagogue. So what to do? According to Luke, Paul discovers that there's a group of God-fearing Gentile women in this city. Now, the term God-fearer was a technical title given to Gentiles who worshipped the God of Israel but never became converts to Judaism. Now, how this happened, we're really not sure. How did a group of Gentile women meet for prayer, praying to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Perhaps they'd been to Jerusalem, which must have been true because one of these women was a businesswoman. Perhaps she'd gone to Jerusalem at some time in the past. Perhaps she'd been there during the Passover and heard of God's great deliverance and stayed to learn more. Perhaps. But the Bible gives no details, only that there they were in Philippi of all places. Female God-fearers who met alongside the river at Philippi to pray. And Paul discovers there are a group of them, God-fearers, meeting outside the city walls every Sabbath day. And he joins them for prayer and in the process preaches the gospel to them. Now, one of these women, a businesswoman named Lydia, we know that she marketed and sold purple goods, fabrics, very expensive purple dyes, highly prized in that day. She was probably a wealthy woman. Luke says the Lord opened her heart. It simply means that the Holy Spirit came upon her as Paul preached, gave her a new heart, and she believed. Lydia is the first European to receive Christ as Savior and Lord. And not only her. But this woman had a household which would have consisted of her family and then all the people who worked for her in her industry. And she invited Paul to meet her household and to preach the gospel to them. And her entire household believed. A church had begun in Europe, the first ever European church. But of course, that's not the end. One day as Paul and his team were going to the place of prayer at the river, I imagine now this place of prayer is growing, more people are coming all the time, and a demon-possessed slave girl met them and she used to follow Paul around crying out in what must have been a very annoying way. These men are servants of the Most High God. And to make a long story short, Paul cast out the demon from her, and that was both good and bad news. See, the girl had owners and they had used her demon-possessed condition to make money through fortune-telling. But once the demon left this slave girl, apparently so did her powers of predicting individual future destinies in people's lives. Immediately, her owners created a disturbance. Their money supply had run out. 
They were accusing Paul of bringing Jewish customs into the city, and we can easily see that there was an anti-Jewish feeling in that city. That may surprise us because there were almost no Jews there. But everyone knew that Jews were exempt under Roman law from being required to honor the various religions of the Roman Empire. Jews would have been viewed as intolerant and unwilling to blend in. And clearly, what Paul had done in driving out the demon from this girl showed a remarkable lack of tolerance and respect for other people's religious views. That's just like the Jews, they thought. And these people of Philippi, proud of their Roman-style city, weren't going to put up with this kind of narrow-minded activity. And so Paul and Silas are arrested, they're beaten with rods, and they're thrown into prison. But that was the good news. See, at midnight, beaten and in jail, they're singing praises to God, and something that happens frequently in that part of the world happened that night, an earthquake. And the earthquake was so severe, the jail doors break, and the jailer, who knows Roman law, that if you allow your prisoners to escape, you're going to die. So he assumes that Paul and his team have fled into the night, and he takes a sword, and he's about to kill himself when Paul calls out to him, we're here, don't harm yourself. And again, to make a long story short, this prison guard comes to Christ, and just like Lydia, allows Paul to preach to his household, and all of them also come to Christ. And that household is all baptized, and we have to assume this man and whoever belonged to him were joined with Lydia, and whoever belonged to her, and whoever joined the group to pray outside the city walls as well, so that the first ever Christian church in Europe was actually beginning to grow. But the city officials are not happy. I mean, this Paul is a troublemaker, and they come to kick Paul out of town. But Paul won't go peaceably. He points out that he's a Roman citizen, and under Roman law, they are not permitted to beat him as they have done. Well, that creates a frenzy, so much so that the city officials apologize to him and still ask him to leave the city. But Paul is still not done. He went back to visit Lydia. Now, I have no idea what he told her, but he must have told her something about what she must do after he's gone. And with that, Paul left the city, and his ministry there is over. Now, years ago, I met an elderly man by the name of Rochunga Pudayate. Now, Rochunga was an Indian man who told me his remarkable story. Back in 1910, a Welsh missionary by the name of Watkin Roberts defied British authority, traveled to a headhunting village in India, armed only with a New Testament. He taught the people of that village the Gospel of John. The key members of that village believed, gave their lives to Christ. But the British heard about Robert's activities, and they threw him out of the country. Rochunga was born to parents who had heard the gospel from a Welsh missionary, and as Rochunga got older, his parents and the entire village sent young Rochunga to study at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Chicago, where Rochunga translated the entire Bible into his native language and published it and made it available to the Hamar people made up of many villages in India. But Rochunga was not done. He wanted to find Watkin Roberts to find out if this man who brought the gospel to his people was still alive, and he wanted to find a way to honor this man's amazing sacrifice. And to Rochunga's amazement, he found that Roberts was not only alive, but that he lived in Toronto. He traveled to Toronto and found him. Roberts was old and lived in a small apartment, was a member of the People's Church, a great historic church in this country. But Watkin Roberts was not in good health. 
But Rochunga made arrangements to take him to India and to the Hamar people. See, Roberts had no idea what his ministry had actually meant. And he was carried from village to village as men and women, a multitude of them, in various villages, rose in honor to the man who had brought them the gospel and turned their people to Christ. Roberts had no idea that his short assignment in that part of the world would bear such great fruit. You know, I love that story, and it does remind me of Paul. Stepping onto European soil, Paul had a grand vision that the gospel would be driven deeply into the heart of Europe and even one day into Rome itself. And as we study this amazing letter, we're going to find out that, that like Watkin Roberts, Paul and the new converts in Philippi were going to find out that the gospel was moving forward in a way that they would never have imagined. Eventually, what would happen is that between Paul and the Philippian Christians, they would join into a fellowship of the gospel, very much like a partnership in the gospel. Together, Paul and this church would dream of a day when the gospel would penetrate into Rome itself and change the entire world. What a dream. Let's learn from this book about our own dream for the gospel in our country. John, thanks for your message today. It really seems like it's going to be a great series and a great challenge to the church. Why do you think it's so important to challenge the church even today? As I go through this series, I'm going to really challenge our definition of fellowship. You're going to hear more about that tomorrow. I think we're always in danger as a church of forgetting our mission and our vision. Uh, We have allowed the church sometimes to degenerate into a country club. We've not recognized that we are called upon in mission. We don't understand what we're supposed to be doing. And all of that has a negative impact on the furtherance of the gospel in this country. Unless the church is awakened to rediscover what she is called upon to do, we will never see the gospel progress in this country. So I think that what Paul is telling us in Philippians ought to be listened to by the church and by all believers. It will awaken us to a new mission. As we end Dr. Neufeld's introduction to the book of Philippians, what an incredible story we've traced on how Paul started this church, the first church of its kind in Europe. Today, we've been reminded of what it means to believe in our hearts and minds in the power of the gospel. It's something that we can doubt at times, especially in the kind of hostile and anti-God culture that was also typical of Paul's day. But the power of the gospel is real. And you'll want to continue to listen to this series as a great source of strength and encouragement. Be sure to join us again tomorrow as Dr. Neufeld jumps right back into chapter 1 of Philippians with a message entitled, Embracing a Fellowship of the Gospel. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. past number of years back to the Bible Canada has been blessed to offer a unique Israel experience, a journey to the Holy Land under the teaching of Dr. John Newfeld, discovering first-hand locations across Israel so prominent in the Bible. Now's the time to plan ahead. In April of 2021, Back to the Bible Canada is offering our next Israel experience and we want you to attend. Join an intimate group of brothers and sisters journeying across Israel under the teaching of Dr. John Neufeld and experience events and activities that will include Laugh Again's Phil Calloway, very special musical guests, and hosted by the Back to the Bible Canada ministry team. 
For more information, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.